Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, want to start reading with Philippians chapter 4, uh, starting or, or looking at verse 8. Uh, this is what Paul writes. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, just as a reminder, this whole idea of the uh, whatevers is, again, not a limitation. Uh, this is not a uh, putting you in a little tiny box. This is not restrictive kind of things. Yes, there's restriction. But it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a fence in the sense of like, oh, no, I can't do all this stuff. What Paul, the emphasis that Paul's bringing is that this whole thing produces freedom, that this is a whatever, that, hey, yeah, there are some boundaries, but in the boundaries, you can just go crazy. You can just think about whatever you want to think about in the boundaries, which means you, you never have to, you don't have to dwell on fear. Uh, you don't have to live in lust. You don't have to, and he's giving you a boundary, but he's telling you, hey, you don't have to, you don't have to think about all that stuff you don't want to think about, that you can actually walk in freedom and triumph and hope and joy uh, that you're wanting to live in anyway. And so again, this is a, this is a possibility thing. This is a, woo, this is exciting kind of a thing, which I'd love for you to tell your faces because you guys are like not awake this morning. So again, this is an exciting passage. Uh, this is not a, oh, bummer. We have to limit our thinking. This is a, woo, we, hey, think about all the stuff that we get to think upon. Uh, we've been walking through these whatevers, and uh, we looked at this idea of true, what is, that which is truth. Uh, last time we looked at that which is honorable uh, or noble. And uh, today we're looking at the third one, which is this idea of whatever is right. Or some translations say whatever is just. Uh, that word for right or just, it's the, the Greek word dikaios. And it's interesting, if you remember from the last one, we were looking at this word honorable. Uh, the word honorable, it, it's, it, was, uh, it was a rare Greek word. It wasn't used very often. But this word, whatever is right or whatever is just, this word is all over the place in classical Greek. I mean, it's used thousands of times throughout classical Greek. Uh, even, in, even in the scriptures, it's used 421 times in the Old Testament and 81 times in the New Testament. I mean, it's like this word just starts popping up all over the place and talking about this idea of that which is right, which is just. Uh, so let me give you a definition. Uh, it has this idea of morally right, correct, good, innocent, faultless, guiltless. It gives you this idea. It's the way of thinking, feeling, and acting that is wholly conformed to the will of God. Isn't that an interesting thought? It's the way of thinking, feeling, and acting that is wholly conformed to God's will. And what's interesting is when you get into the word itself, it has this idea of, or the concept is that it's a, this idea of righteousness or justice. 
And of course, we spend a lot of time talking about this around here, but this idea of righteousness, uh, that which is righteous, it's that which is correct or proper, just, pure, noble. It's the honorable pattern for living. It's the most virtuous course. It's the most perfect means. It's the most correct methodology and behavior. Or as we often like to translate around here, it's as God is and as man ought to be. What is righteousness? It's who God is. And it's what we are called to. Uh, It's interesting when you look at this idea of that which is right or that which is just, uh, justice, this idea of righteousness, you realize the whole world has its own definition for what is righteous. Uh, It has its own definition for justice. And depending on where you are in the world, justice looks a little different. In other words, if you go to the Middle East, their sense of justice is slightly different than the Western world. But biblically, the idea of justice or the idea of righteousness is founded on two key things. So phenomenal. So as you get into scripture, righteousness and justice is defined by two things. You ready for these? Number one, God's nature and character. And number two, God's word. Which, of course, you should be sitting there going, well, duh. (laughs) Of course. But when you look at this idea of righteousness and justice, biblically, it is always defined not by what you think is right, but what he thinks is right. Haven't you ever found the times where you went out and did something and it made complete sense in your mind and you were absolutely convinced this is right, only to find it was completely wrong? Yes? I mean, haven't you done that? Where you make some decision, you're like, oh, this was perfect. This is, this is such a great decision. I know this is right. And then eventually you go, oh, that wasn't right at all. Well, why is that? It's because for most of us, we are our own definition of righteousness. Uh, we are our own definition of justice. We revert back into our own life and we independently say, okay, what is right? What is true? What is good? What is just? And so therefore we're making decisions out of our own intellect, out of our own wisdom, out of our own ability. Uh, scripture has this idea that, hey, there's, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but it only leads to death. And you look at the culture today, and what is the culture doing? They are living by that which they think is right. And yet you can look at the world and go, that doesn't seem right at all. It seems a little twisted or perverse or odd or confused or whatever term you want to use. So just because it may look right, just because you may think it's right, does that mean it is right? No. So how are we going to define that which is right and that which is just? Well, we need a solid foundation. We need something that's unchanging. We need, oh, you know what we need? We need Jesus. Because he is righteousness. And it is his character and his word, the two things that are unchanging, that define that which is right and that which is just. And so just to prove this to you, because you don't look like you're convinced, or you're just not awake yet. (laughs) Uh, But listen to this. Speaking of God's character being right or righteous, let me give you a bunch of verses. So good. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 7. Listen to this. This idea of righteousness shows up three times. For the Lord is righteous. It's his character. He loves righteousness. The upright will see his face. Isn't that interesting? So he is righteous. He loves righteousness. That's the same word. That's this word. But then the upright will see his face. Those who actually walk in 
in uprightness, in rightness, in righteousness, will see his face. Uh, Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. He's righteous, folks. Psalm 119, verse 142. Uh, The psalmist says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. So it's not that he just has a little bit of righteousness and it may turn off eventually. Hey, his righteousness is eternal, folks. He will forever and always be righteous. That's his nature. Luke 23, verse 47. uh, Jesus is on the cross. The centurion looks at Jesus. And here's the statement that the centurion makes. He said, certainly this was a righteous man. Speaking about Jesus. That's this word. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the righteous one. Uh, the book of Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. Uh, John says, I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you. The one who is and who was the Holy One because you judge these things. So what is Jesus being called? Oh, you are the righteous one. Are you getting this? God's nature is righteous. It is as he is. This is who he is. He is perfectly right. He is perfectly just. He is perfect. But then it's also said of his word that the word is righteous. Uh, For example, Romans 7.12, Paul writes, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So what is God's word? It's righteous. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 137, You are righteous, and your judgments, your word, is right. So there's two standards by which we, as Christians, need to understand righteousness or that which is just. Well, what is it? It's God's character and it's his word. So what do we build our lives around? His character, his life, and his word. What should you be thinking upon? Jesus. Go crazy with Jesus. You realize there's no law against Jesus. Biblically. Just go crazy. Biblically, you are not to be greedy. Greed is wrong, except in one area. Jesus. Just go crazy. Go after him. Just, just keep going. Isn't it a phenomenal thought in the Beatitudes, right? The hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness. What are we talking about? Jesus. And isn't it a phenomenal reality with righteousness, right? With this idea of hungering and thirsting after him that, uh, that you go and you, you, go, you go after him, right? You're, you're hungry, so you pursue. And he fills you, which is phenomenal. But the moment he fills you, it expands your capacity, which makes you hungrier and thirstier still. So what do you, what do? You do? You, go, you go after him, and he fills you, which is phenomenal. But what does it do? Expands your capacity, which makes you hungry and thirstier still. Now, physically, that has a limit. I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's a limit, though, physically. 
Do you realize spiritually there is no limit? That there's this constant hungering and thirsting and pressing in and pursuing and there's just this longing and, and he satisfies that. Why? Because he is the righteous one. So why wouldn't you just go after Jesus? Why, why wouldn't you allow your mind to be guarded and dwelling upon the one thing that don't we want to dwell upon anyway, which is our Lord and Savior? So what is the boundaries for your thinking? Jesus. Now that was true when we looked at truth. That was true when we looked at honorable. That is true as we look at right. And if you want to guess where we're going on the rest of these. <laughs> but we're not going to give a hint because we want you to listen. Uh, but as you walk, isn't it interesting? Every single one of these point to Jesus and his word. So what is the boundary for your thinking? Jesus and his word. So that being said, I want to give you five practical things that thinking with right or just thoughts lead to. In other words, if, if, if my mind is going to be, the boundary of my mind is going to be that which is right and that which is just, what does that mean practically in my life? So let me give you five ideas. Number one, that righteous and just thinking is going to force me to the cross. By, by its very nature, it's going to demand that I go, I go to the cross. You realize that not a single one of us is righteous in and of ourselves. Okay, you don't believe me. Romans 3.10. Paul says, it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. So we have the perfect righteous man, Jesus, and outside of Jesus, there is not one single person who is righteous on their own. Hey, you don't have it in you. There is nothing good within you. In fact, I love what Isaiah 64, 6 says. And again, I'm, I won't go into details, but you, you should study this out. But Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And if you don't know what filthy rags means, you should go look it up. But it is disturbing. It is not like, oh, I have a rag and I dropped it in the mud. It's a lot worse. It's this soiled, bloody, nasty tampon. Sorry, I went there. Uh, that's the word. That's what it means. In other words, we're not going, oh, let's keep it. It's like, uh. Do you know what, do you know what Isaiah is saying about your, the best you can produce, the best of your righteousness? It is but a filthy rag. What do, you, what do you do with filthy rags? You toss it. It's no good. I mean, there's just, does it make any sense to you? Some of you are like, that was disturbing. I know, <laughs> but I didn't write it. So, hey, the, the moment I turn within myself, the moment that I try to produce in my own ability, hey, the moment that I try to have some ability of righteousness within me, God says the best you're ever going to pull off in and of yourself is but filthy rags. But I love the fact that the solution is given in Isaiah 61 verse 10. And, and listen, listen to this. This is so encouraging. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. 
my soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Who is your salvation? Jesus. Do you know what he has clothed you in? Jesus. Do you know why so many times in the epistles it talks about put on the Lord Jesus Christ to, to clothe yourself with Christ? It's because it is a picture of something. It's, it's a going back to Isaiah 61.10. It's the fact that we are clothed with this garment of salvation. It goes on and says, He has wrapped me, he has really put upon me the robe of righteousness. What is it speaking of? Jesus. So here I am, and the best that I can pull off in my own ability, in my own pockets, is but filthy rags. But I'm called to be righteous. So what hope do I have? I don't have any hope outside of Jesus. But the moment I embrace Jesus and I come to the foot of the cross, do you realize what begins to take place is he clothes me with himself, and he becomes the garment of salvation in my soul. He becomes the robe of righteousness which I wear. So it is not my righteousness that I appeal to because I, I don't have any righteousness. Well, what do I appeal to? His righteousness. And it is his righteousness that has clothed me. Isn't that phenomenal? Sir? Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 is the bad one. Isaiah 61, 10. Oh. It's the good one. You're welcome. Uh, Romans 5.19. Listen to this. Paul writes in Romans 5.19, For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, right? Speaking of Adam, that through Adam, this one man, we were all made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made Righteous. So how are, we, how are we going to be righteous? How are we going to find righteousness? How on earth is our minds going to ever dwell upon that which is right and true and just? We need Jesus, folks. He is our sole means of salvation. He is our only means of righteousness. And it is because of Jesus that now your mind has the ability to dwell upon that which is right, that which is just, because he is our righteousness. He is our justice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, <clears throat> he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, get this, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know how crazy of a passage that is? That here we are, the best that we can produce is but filthy rags, but he has clothed us with himself and he is now our righteousness. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the one who was perfectly righteous became sin, took our sin, so that we could take on his righteousness. And now we are God's righteousness in Christ. We're literally bearing his righteousness. Isn't that a crazy thought? So again, this is not about you and your righteousness. This is not about your talent or your ability. This is all about him and his righteousness and his justice being displayed in your life. What if that was true and started in your mind? Because you realize the only way your life is ever going to reflect in action is it first has to start in your mind. That our actions are a, an outpouring of your thought life. So that means, what if God got, got a hold of your thought life? And became your thought life. And his righteousness, his life, is that which actually was the boundary of your, of your mind. 
So when I think right or justly, it demands that I have to go to the cross because otherwise there's no means of me thinking that which is right and just. Second, if I'm going to think right or justly, it's going to demand an obedience to the word of God. Again, this word, ah, this word is right. This word is, is a picture of his righteousness. This is the revelation of his righteousness, which means I have to come and I have to submit myself under the authority of this word, and then I need to saturate in this book so that this book is filling up my mind. Which is why the psalmists say stuff like, hey, I meditate upon your word day and night. Hey, you need to memorize the word. Why? So you can fill up your mind with that which is right. So you know the boundaries. Uh, Romans 2, thir- uh, two, chapter 2, verse 13 says this, For it is not the hearers of the law or the word who are righteous before God, but it is the doers who are justified. So you realize this is not about, well, did, did, you, did you read the Bible today? Good if you did, good if you didn't. The issue is not, did you hear the word? The issue is, have you embraced the word where you're now putting it into action? Are you walking in obedience? Uh, there's a lot of scholars who know a lot about the word. Satan knows the word. Well, good for them. It's not helping them though. Why? Because they've actually not come under the authority of the word and they're not putting it into practice. So you realize that if your mind is going to be filled up with that which is right and that which is just, it's going to demand that it actually flows into the reality of your actions and you begin to obey that which the word says. Jesus said stuff like, you are my disciples if you obey my word. Right? We have to come under the authority and live according to this book. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So, hey, God is righteous. Amen. Jesus is the righteous one. Absolutely. But it's the one who actually practices righteousness who is righteous. Not the one who just merely talks about it. And the word there, by the way, for, for practice, it's the Greek word poieo, which is this idea that it's bubbling forth within you. This isn't like a duty or obligation thing. This isn't a checklist kind of a thing. This is, it just stirs within you, and it, it's that creative inside stuff that has to be demonstrated, released, done. Well, how, how on earth is that going to come out of you? Well, that means it has to be within you. So when the righteous one comes inside of you, he begins to stir something within you or it's like you just can't help yourself. It just comes out of you. And you begin to practice righteousness. Why? Because righteousness is within you because he is the righteous one. You getting this? Uh, Third, if your mind is is, is dwelling upon that which is right and that which is just, it means that you are going to seek out injustice. I find it interesting that for my mind to dwell upon that which is right or that which is just, it doesn't mean that I ignore injustice. It actually means that I go seek out the injustice and right the wrong. That I seek to flip the injustice. Do you know how many times that's in Scripture, that idea? Uh, One of the chapters we love around here is Job 29. Uh, In Job 29, it's like the, the manhood chapter. It's a great chapter. 
But Job is talking about how he lived. And let me just give you a couple of the verses. Job 29, verse 12 through 17, Job says this. He says, I saved the poor who cried out for help, the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one who was about to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a headband. I was eyes to those who were blind and feet to those who could not walk. I was a father to the poor. Get this. And I sought out the case that I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and rescued the prey from his teeth. That's a passage. What is Job saying? He says, hey, I, was, I wasn't just waiting for people to come to me and says, can, can, I, can I have some help? all right, here's a dollar. He says, do you know what I was doing? I was actually going out and seeking the cause of the orphan, the destitute, the widow, the, those who are helpless. In fact, I, I, was, I was seeking around saying, hey, who can I help? And even, even the one I, you know, here's this little tiny lamb, this little helpless person in the jaws of the wicked. And it's like this lion has come and, and grabbed a little lamb. Job says, do you know what I did? I, I looked and I ran it over to that lion, that, that place of wickedness, and I literally broke the, the, the jaws of the lion and literally grabbed the spoil from his mouth. Wouldn't that be interesting if that described your life? I'm not talking social justice. Uh, social justice, in my mind, has become this liberal, garbly gook thing. Where it's like, I'll just go help all these people and not bring them the gospel. And it has nothing to do with truth or the word of God. I'm not talking about that. What I am saying, though, is, do you know what God's heart is for? His heart is for the weak. It is for the vulnerable. It is for the destitute. It is for the orphan and the widow and the, the fatherless. And God consistently says, hey, would you get, get my heart for the people around you and would you go rescue? What have you got God's heart for abortion? And says, hey, there's a bunch of injustice happening right now and all these little babies are being killed. So as a Christian whose mind is full of rightness and justice, I'm really going to march into the middle of the injustice and I'm going to make a, I'm going to let God use my life to make a difference. What if we would do that for the slavery issues? Uh, what if we would do that for the poverty? What if we would do that for the homeless? What if we would do that for the widows? What if we would do that for the single mothers? What if we would, does this make any sense to you? So this is not ignore the issues of the day. This is, hey, would you gain God's heart for the issues and then now go out and be used to rescue and win and seek? And I'll give you a few other verses. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, obtain justice for the orphan, plead the widow's case. Proverbs 29.7, the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Do you realize that as God's people, we are called not to guard and protect our little world, ourselves. We are willing vessels that God can use however he may choose to rescue, to save, to encourage, to bind up the brokenhearted. That, that we are the vessels that God wants to use to deal with the orphan crisis, to deal with poverty, to deal with the abortion stuff, to deal with 
So seek it out. Hey, God, how, how, do, how do you want to use me for, in, in, in the realm of sex trafficking? God, how do you want to use me in the sense of poverty? Hey, God, how do you want to use me? And maybe all you got to do is pray right now. Then pray. But would you be willing for God to use you to seek out the injustice, to break the fangs of the wicked, to rescue the spoil from its mouth, to be used to bring the gospel to those who desperately need it? Number four, got to hurry. Uh, it's not just seeking out the injustice, but it's also forgiving the injustice done against us. Uh, I think all of us could say, well, yeah, there's, there's been some injustice done in my life. Uh, there, there's been people who have just dumped a bunch of junk in my life and caused chaos. Do you, do you know what we as Christians are called to do? Forgive. And part of keeping your mind Thinking upon that which is right and that which is just means that when, those, when, when there are people who do injustice against us, we forgive those. Why? Because God forgave us. So as Romans 5.8 says, here we are shaking our fists in God's face and we're living in unrighteousness and we're living in our sin and we're living in how we want to do whatever we want to do. Even then, Christ died for us. So it makes sense then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where it says, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as Christ also forgave you. So what is, what is the measure or how, how much should we forgive the people around us? In the same way Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive you? Extravagantly. Which means you can't hold on to the injustice that people have done against you. Why? Because your mind has to be dwelling upon that which is right and just. So as long as you keep stewing about the injustice that so-and-so did to, to you, do you realize you're actually not allowing your mind to dwell upon the right and the just? So what are you called to do? Forgive. So isn't that an interesting thought? We forgive those who commit injustice against us, but we are to go out and seek injustice so we can turn it on its head. Lastly, there's this whole idea that if my mind is going to be guarded by that which is right and that which is just, it's going to mean that I need to become like Jesus. That there's this whole idea of Christ's likeness. Why? He's perfect righteousness, folks. And he is calling us to be like him. Do you realize that God wants to so transform your heart and your mind that we actually gain his heart and his mind. I love what Romans 8, 29 says. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed or molded, pressed, reshaped, transformed to the image of his son. Do you know what you're to be? Conformed to the image of Jesus. Uh, you have this little Play-Doh mold. Remember this as kids? You have this cool little mold. And as a little kid, you took some Play-Doh and you squeezed that thing into that mold and you were force-fitting the Play-Doh to go into that mold and to take on that shape. Do you know what we call that in Christianity? Sanctification. <laughs> yeah, that the Holy Spirit is taking your life, you're this clay, Play-Doh, right? You're just dust. And he's shoving you into this mold 
and anything that doesn't look like Jesus is supposed to leave. Yeah, that frustration issue can't be there. Lust, yeah, that can't be there. That, that anger problem, yeah, that can't be there. Fear, yep, yeah, yeah, that's not supposed to be there either. And he's really taking you and you, he's shoving you into this mold called Jesus. And he is molding you, transforming you, conforming you, reshaping you, transforming you to look like Jesus. Now, you're not Jesus. But you're supposed to look like him. What would that mean in your life to have, as Philippians 2.5 says, to have the mind of Christ? To have that same attitude or that same perspective. What would it mean as like Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says that you would actually be transformed by the renewing of your mind? What is that all about? It's becoming like Jesus. That he is conforming you. He's doing something in your life to bring about the reality of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's perfect righteousness. Ah, Listen to this. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Did you get that? Everything you need for life and for godliness is found in one place. Jesus. And he's given you all things that you need for life and godliness. So name me one thing that you need outside of life and godliness. Yep, I can't think of anything else either. Everything you need is found in Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, get these, through these he granted, given us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, get this, by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. Did you hear that? Because of Jesus and because all things that we need are found in him, we get to be partakers. We get to share in his divine nature. Now, you, that does not mean you become God. You do not become God. You are not little gods, despite what popular modern Christian junk is spouting out there. Okay, you, you do not become God. But do you realize that it's like he has cracked open, I, this is, don't go crazy with this. But it's like he's cracked open the Trinity and said, oh, come on in. Hey, I've cracked open my heart and just he's inviting you in. And you don't become God. We do not become God. We do not become God. I just want to make sure this is clear. But somehow we get to become Christ-like. Somehow we get to share and participate in his divine nature. Not because we are anything, but because he is everything. And do you realize that when my mind is focused on that which is right and just, he is going to be molding me. He's going to be pressing me into this image of his something where I get somehow get to, I somehow get to participate. I get to share in. I get to experience his divine nature because he lives inside of us, folks. What if that was the guard on your heart and your mind? And the boundary for your life, the boundary for your mind was Jesus and the word. And you can just, you can think about anything you want as long as it draws you to Jesus. You can think about anything you want as long as, long as it is guarded by this book. See, this is not a limitation thing. This is a wow kind of a thing. 
that you can go crazy on this. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you are the righteous one. And Lord, we confess that in, in and of ourselves, there is nothing good. There is nothing righteous or just. In fact, Lord, the best that we can pull off is but filthy rags. But you, O oh Lord, are our righteousness. You are the garment of salvation that we put on. Which means our thought life can be righteous. It could be full of justice, that which is right and true. And Lord, I'm consistently being confronted by the reality of this passage that, that this list that, that Paul gave us in verse 8 is, is not a list of things that we're to think about and then just do whatever. That, that these things are supposed to so fill up our minds that it then oozes out in our language, it oozes out in our actions, it, it, oozes, in, it oozes out in our emotions and feelings. So Lord, what would it look like if, if my language, if my thought life, if my actions, if my emotions were all determined by that which is righteous? Because somehow I get to share in your heart and your mind. Lord, Lord, would you take our lives and would you really press them into a Play-Doh mold called Jesus? And Lord, anything that doesn't fit inside that mold, will you, will you strip away? Would you remove would you just sanctify to the point, Lord, we know we, we don't become you. I, I, we get that. And, and Lord, we, we have no interest in being God. But Lord, we do want to look like you, look like you, and talk like you, and think like you. And, and Lord, could, could, we, could we be representatives on this earth of you? Because we are called Christians, which means our lives should reflect and demonstrate the reality of you, your character your righteousness. And so, Lord, I, I just pray afresh this morning that your spirit would come and for every single person that is listening, that you would somehow convict our hearts and our minds of anything that does not look like Jesus, any attitudes that don't look like Jesus, any thought patterns, any habits, any behaviors, any emotions. Lord, would you strip us all down to just look like you? And Lord, would you be the guard upon our hearts and our minds May your word be that which we dwell upon. Somehow, Lord, could you keep us focused upon that which is righteous? And Lord, what freedom we have to think upon anything that draws us to you. Lord, this isn't limiting. This isn't, a, oh, bummer, I can only think about two things. This is, wow, there's so much we can now think upon. As long as it draws us to you. So, Lord, would you be the fullness of our mind? our hearts, our attitudes. We need you. Oh, we need you, the righteous one. We need you. Lord, we do love you. Give you all the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen.